you are now tuned into World War II Stories. I'm your host, Steve Matthews, and I'm here to take you on a journey through the whirlwind of historical events that shaped our world and defined generations. Stay tuned every Tuesday and Thursday as we delve into the riveting, inspiring, and sometimes tragic stories from World War II. We'll meet the brave men and women who stood up to tyranny, we'll explore clandestine operations and daring escapes, and we'll pay tribute to the resilience of the human spirit in times of extreme adversity. Also, be sure to check out our other podcast focusing on World War I, the conflict that set the stage for the global turmoil that followed. Use the link in the description below. As the dawn of November 8, 1942 broke, a wave of uncertainty swept across the decks of the Allied invasion fleet. Thousands of American and British soldiers, sailors, and airmen cast nervous glances at each other, their faces lit intermittently by the soft glow of their vessel's lights reflected off the undulating Mediterranean waters. They were about to embark on a mission unprecedented in its scale and audacity, Operation Torch, the largest amphibious invasion undertaken thus far in World War II. This operation wasn't taking them to the beaches of France or the islands of the Pacific. Instead, they were sailing towards the shores of French North Africa, a region dominated by the Vichy French government, a puppet of Adolf Hitler's seemingly invincible Nazi regime. The goal was to open a new front against the Axis powers, to relieve pressure on the beleaguered Soviet Union, and ultimately, to strike a blow against Hitler's fortress Europe. Operation Torch was a gamble, one born of strategic necessity and fraught with diplomatic and military risks. Yet, in the grand epic of World War II, it emerged as a pivotal chapter, an event that transformed the course of the war and set the stage for the final push towards victory. This is the story of Operation Torch, a saga of audacious strategy, brave men, uncertain alliances, hard-fought battles, and the forging of a path to victory from the heat and dust of North Africa. Chapter 1. Prelude to Operation Torch In the heart of Europe, a fire was kindling. Germany, devastated by the First World War and its punitive peace, seethed with resentment, seeking a chance for revenge and restitution. A charismatic and fiery speaker named Adolf Hitler had tapped into this anger, seizing power and setting the nation on a course that would plunge the world into chaos. The 1930s had been a turbulent decade. Hitler's Nazi regime began remilitarizing the Rhineland and annexing neighboring territories under the pretext of uniting all German-speaking peoples. In the East, the Soviet Union watched warily, while to the West, Great Britain and France, still haunted by the carnage of the Great War, were reluctant to intervene. This uneasy peace began to crumble in September 1939. Hitler, emboldened by the lack of resistance, signed a non-aggression pact with Soviet leader Joseph Stalin and launched an invasion of Poland. The Second World War had begun. France, Britain, and their allies declared war on Germany but they were ill-prepared for the speed and brutality of the German Wehrmacht's blitzkrieg tactics. By June 1940, France had fallen, and Britain stood alone, grimly awaiting the expected German invasion. Across the Atlantic, the United States watched the unfolding catastrophe with growing alarm. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 
while aware of the growing threat posed by the Axis powers, faced a populace largely reluctant to be drawn into another European war. But the winds of war were blowing their way, and with the devastating attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, America was finally drawn into the global conflict. As the Allies regrouped and strategized, the enormity of their task became apparent. With most of Europe under Nazi control and Britain under siege, they needed to strike back. But where, when, and how? The Soviet Union, grappling with the German invasion on the Eastern Front, was demanding a second front to alleviate pressure. The answer came in the form of Operation Torch, an ambitious plan to invade North Africa. The brains behind the operation believed it to be a stepping stone, a precursor to the eventual invasion of Europe through Italy. They hoped this strategic move would force Hitler to divert resources from the Eastern Front, providing much-needed respite for the embattled Soviets. And thus, the stage was set for one of the most daring gambits of the Second World War. As the war raged on, the Allies needed a plan. Britain, under the indomitable leadership of Winston Churchill, and the United States, led by President Roosevelt, agreed on the necessity of a united front against the Axis powers. However, deciding on where to strike first proved to be a source of significant tension between these two great leaders. Churchill, a seasoned statesman with a keen understanding of global strategy, was convinced that the soft underbelly of the Axis, referring to Italy and the Balkans, would be their most vulnerable point. He argued that a Mediterranean strategy, commencing with an invasion of North Africa, would allow the Allies to control vital shipping lanes and pave the way for attacks on Italy and Greece. Roosevelt, on the other hand, had a different perspective. Encouraged by his military advisors, particularly General George Marshall, the president pushed for a more direct approach. He championed the concept of Operation Sledgehammer, a cross-channel invasion into France as early as 1943, to relieve pressure on the Soviet Union, which was enduring the brunt of Hitler's onslaught. The debates were fierce and the stakes high. Both leaders realized that a misstep could cost them the war. Despite the urgency, the military reality made a direct assault on France infeasible, at least for the time being. Allied forces lacked the necessary equipment, training, and logistical capacity for such a grand endeavor. Churchill's Mediterranean strategy seemed a more attainable goal. It would still divert German resources, and in the process, provide American troops with combat experience in a less risky theater. The decision was finally made during a series of high-level meetings in London and Washington. The Allied leaders agreed to put the cross-channel invasion on hold and focus on North Africa. Operation Torch was born from these strategic deliberations, a plan audacious in scope and fraught with risks. With an ambitious timeline set for late 1942, the Allies began their detailed planning and intense preparation. This daring operation was their best shot at seizing the initiative from Hitler and beginning the long journey toward victory. Once the decision to proceed with Operation Torch was finalized, the Allies were faced with a monumental task. Detailed planning needed to be undertaken, involving intricate considerations of logistics, tactics, and politics. 
a leadership team needed to be assembled and a precise course of action needed to be charted. The responsibility for leading the operation fell to a comparatively unknown figure at that time, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. This would be Eisenhower's first major command, a test of his leadership and strategic acumen. Despite his relative inexperience, Eisenhower proved to be a shrewd leader with an extraordinary ability to coordinate and lead multinational forces. Eisenhower worked closely with Admiral Andrew Cunningham, who was tasked with the naval aspect of the operation. Cunningham, a seasoned naval officer, was renowned for his role in the Battle of Taranto in 1940, where he had successfully crippled the Italian fleet. His experience and strategic insight were invaluable to the planning and execution of Operation Torch. Despite the military and logistical challenges, one of the thorniest aspects of planning Torch was the political landscape. The target of the invasion was North Africa, under the control of Vichy France, a regime collaborating with Nazi Germany. The dilemma was complex. The Vichy forces might resist, leading to a fight against the very people the Allies were trying to liberate. Conversely, they could defect to the Allies, but that carried its own complications, as many in the Allied countries viewed the Vichy government with disdain due to their collaboration with the Nazis. To handle these delicate issues, the Allies engaged in diplomatic overtures, sending Jean Monnet, a French economist and diplomat, to negotiate with the Vichy government. His job was to convince them not to resist the invasion, a difficult task given the delicate balance of power and the unpredictable nature of the Vichy regime. As the plans for Operation Torch were finalized and the day of execution drew closer, the tension among the Allied forces was palpable. This was a huge gamble, with thousands of lives and the course of the war hanging in the balance. With their maps spread out and their strategy set, Eisenhower, Cunningham, and their team knew that the coming weeks would test them in ways they could hardly imagine. Chapter 2 Operation Torch Begins As darkness draped the Mediterranean on November 7, 1942, a vast fleet of Allied ships cut through the chilling waves. Their destination, the shores of North Africa. Their mission, Operation Torch. The soldiers on board, most of them green and untested, steeled themselves for what lay ahead. The tension was tangible, cutting through the cold night air sharper than any knife. Commanding this great armada was General Eisenhower, calm and confident, yet acutely aware of the enormity of their task. For most of these men, this was their first taste of war, their first venture into the harsh theater of conflict. Eisenhower felt a deep responsibility for them, a sentiment echoed by his naval counterpart, Admiral Cunningham. They both knew that in just a few hours, these men would be stepping into the pages of history. As the first light of dawn touched the horizon on November 8, the men got their first glimpse of their objective. The coast of Morocco and Algeria loomed ahead, an ominous and foreboding silhouette against the rosy glow of sunrise. Then, as the signal was given, a flurry of activity swept across the decks. Troops scrambled into landing craft, hearts pounding, rifles clutched tightly in their hands. The landing craft descended into the water with a splash, the chilling waves lapping at their sides. As they moved toward the shore, 
the eerie silence was punctuated only by the low drone of the ship engines and the intermittent clanking of weaponry. The young soldiers exchanged glances, their faces a mix of determination and fear. Then, almost out of nowhere, the beaches of North Africa were upon them. The doors of the landing craft dropped open, and with a deep breath, they surged forward. Much to their surprise, the expected wall of resistance was absent. The Vichy French forces, caught by surprise, put up minimal resistance, allowing the Allied forces to establish a foothold quickly. It was an encouraging start to a long and grueling campaign. In the command ship, Eisenhower allowed himself a sigh of relief. The first hurdle had been overcome, but he knew the real test still lay ahead. As daylight spilled across the beaches, marking the start of a new day, Operation Torch was well and truly underway. Following the initial landings, the next target for the Allies was the crucial port city of Casablanca. Vital to the control of North Africa, the city's capture would deal a significant blow to the Axis and provide the Allies with an essential supply point for future operations. General George S. Patton, the famed American commander known for his flamboyant style and ruthless efficiency, was tasked with this crucial mission. Patton, like Eisenhower, was well aware of the stakes. His forces moved towards Casablanca, their spirits high after the surprisingly successful landings, but mindful of the fierce fighting that surely awaited them. Opposing Patton was French Admiral Francois Darla, a high-ranking official of the Vichy regime. Darla was faced with a difficult choice. His loyalties were divided, torn between his duty to the Vichy regime and his desire not to engage in a futile fight against the liberating forces. His decision would ultimately shape the course of the battle. As Patton's forces reached the outskirts of Casablanca, they were met with a stubborn resistance. Despite being vastly outnumbered and outgunned, the French defenders, spurred by a sense of duty, fought valiantly. Casablanca's streets turned into a war zone, echoing with the rattle of gunfire and the roar of artillery. Yet, Patton's forces, hardened by their initial success and buoyed by the righteousness of their cause, pressed on. They battled through the city, gradually tightening their grip on Casablanca. After three grueling days of combat, the city's defenses started to crumble. Simultaneously, back at the negotiation table, Admiral Darla made the monumental decision to cease resistance. Faced with the inevitability of defeat and swayed by Monet's diplomatic efforts, he ordered a ceasefire. The battle for Casablanca was over. News of the victory reached the Allied command, sparking a wave of relief and celebration. The crucial city was in Allied hands, marking a significant turning point in the operation. Yet, even as they reveled in their victory, they knew that this was only the first step in a long journey. A journey that would take them through the heart of North Africa and, ultimately, into the stronghold of the Axis powers. With the fall of Casablanca, the Allied forces had struck a significant blow against the Axis powers. Yet, they knew they couldn't afford to rest on their laurels. The road to victory was still long and fraught with challenges. Now, they had to face the forces of Germany's most decorated general, the Desert Fox Erwin Rommel. 
Rommel, renowned for his strategic acumen and fierce resistance in North Africa, was a formidable opponent. Despite suffering losses and shortages in supplies, his Africa Corps remained a potent threat, determined to resist the Allied advance. Meanwhile, General Bernard Montgomery, commanding the British Eighth Army, was engaged in a fierce contest with Rommel in Egypt. Their showdown at El Alamein, a small railway stop some 60 miles west of Alexandria, would be a pivotal battle in the North African campaign. In the west, Patton, fresh from his victory in Casablanca, marched towards Tunisia. The aim was to trap Rommel between the two Allied forces, squeezing the Africa Corps in a vice of steel and fire. As the winter of 1942 set in, the two sides clashed in a series of brutal engagements. The battles were fierce, marked by rapid shifts in momentum and high casualties. The vast desert landscape, harsh weather, and logistical difficulties only added to the challenges. Yet, the Allies, driven by their successful initial operations and bolstered by superior resources, continued to press on. In the east, Montgomery's Eighth Army finally managed to break through Rommel's lines at El Alamein, marking the first major defeat for the formidable German general. In the west, Patton's forces pushed relentlessly towards Tunisia. Despite stiff resistance and significant losses, they steadily gained ground, demonstrating the hard-earned combat experience from the earlier stages of Operation Torch. By May 1943, the Allies had successfully expelled Axis forces from North Africa. The twin victories at El Alamein in Tunisia marked a major turning point in the war. Operation Torch had achieved its objectives. The cost had been high, but the message was clear. The Allies had turned the tide. They had demonstrated their ability to plan and execute complex operations, inflicting significant defeats on the Axis powers. The road to victory was still long, but for the first time since the dark days of 1940, there was a glimmer of hope. Chapter 3 A War of Attrition As the sands of North Africa absorbed the footprints of the departing Axis forces, the final chapter of the campaign was about to unfold. The final prize lay in the city of Tunis, the capital of Tunisia, a strategic point that would serve as a launchpad for further operations into Europe. This was the race for Tunis, a swift advance aimed at capturing the city before the Axis powers could organize a formidable defense. Leading the charge was General Kenneth Anderson, a seasoned British commander known for his stern demeanor and meticulous planning. A veteran of the Western Front in World War I, Anderson understood the complexities of warfare and the value of swift action. His job was to seize Tunis before the Axis forces had a chance to regroup and fortify their positions. The German commander in charge of the defense was General Hans-Jürgen von Arnim, a professional military officer who had earned a reputation for his leadership during the campaign in North Africa. Von Arnim was determined to hold Tunis for as long as possible, hoping to delay the Allied forces and buy time for the Axis powers. As November turned into December, the race for Tunis was on. The Allies, buoyed by their recent victories, moved with a sense of urgency, driving through the rugged terrain and meeting pockets of resistance head-on. However, the elements were against them. 
The winter rains turned the roads into rivers of mud, slowing the Allied advance. Meanwhile, von Arnhem made full use of the delay. He strengthened the city's defenses, setting up roadblocks and fortifications. As the Allies reached the outskirts of Tunis, they found a city transformed into a fortress. The Germans had set up a strong defensive line, ready to resist the Allied advance. The battle for Tunis was brutal and costly. Each inch of ground was contested fiercely, with neither side willing to yield. Despite the stiff resistance, Anderson's forces kept up the pressure, battering at the German defenses. In early May 1943, the Allied forces finally managed to breach the defenses and enter the city. It was a hard-fought victory, marking the end of the Axis presence in North Africa. The race for Tunis had ended with the city in Allied hands, a significant step towards the final defeat of the Axis powers. As the news of Tunis's fall reached the Allied High Command, there was a sense of relief and jubilation. But beneath the celebrations, there was an understanding. This victory was just one step on a long and arduous journey. The road to victory was still fraught with challenges, and the worst was yet to come. But for now, the Allies could celebrate. The race for Tunis was won. The Battle of Kasserine Pass, fought in February 1943, stands as a stark reminder of the brutal realities of war. It was here, in the rugged mountains of central Tunisia, that the raw and untested American forces received their baptism by fire against the seasoned and battle-hardened troops of Erwin Rommel's Africa Corps. Commanding the American forces was Major General Lloyd Fredendahl, an officer known for his combativeness and rugged persona. A veteran of World War I, Fredendahl was, however, untested in a high-command role in a major theater of operations. His opponent, Rommel, was already a legend, a tactician of extraordinary skill whose cunning had earned him the respect of friends and foes alike. Rommel, seeing an opportunity to exploit the inexperience of the American troops in command, planned a swift, sharp attack aimed at cutting through the Kasserine Pass, a critical point in the defensive line, to destabilize the Allied forces. As the German tanks roared into action on February 19th, the American defenders found themselves thrown into chaos. The onslaught was swift and brutal, a testimony to Rommel's strategic prowess. The inexperienced American troops were unable to hold the line, their positions crumbling under the German assault. In the command post, Fredendahl struggled to react effectively to Rommel's moves. His orders were often confusing, exacerbating the situation on the ground. The Battle of Kasserine Pass was turning into a debacle for the Allies. After several days of intense combat, the American forces were pushed back, suffering heavy losses. It was the U.S. Army's first major engagement with the German forces during the war, and the outcome was a sobering reminder of the enemy's capabilities. However, despite the initial setback, the battle served as a wake-up call for the Americans. Under the new command of General George Patton, who replaced Fredendahl in the wake of the defeat, the American forces underwent a process of rapid improvement. Training, tactics, and command structures were all reformed and improved. Thus, the Battle of Kasserine Pass, while a painful loss, served as a crucible for the American army. 
It marked the start of a transformation from a raw and untested force into a formidable army that would play a decisive role in the ultimate defeat of the Axis powers. Despite the bitter defeat, the lessons learned would prove invaluable in the trials that lay ahead. As the echoes of battle faded at Kasserine Pass, the remaining American forces began the daunting task of reorganizing under their new commander, General George Patton. Kasserine had been a harsh lesson, but it was one that sparked immediate change, a catalyst for the formation of a new, battle-hardened American army. Patton, famously known as Old Blood and Guts, was a dynamic leader who had quickly gained respect for his aggressive tactics and steadfast dedication to his soldiers' welfare. His entrance ushered in a new era of discipline, determination, and, importantly, a solid defense. Meanwhile, the German forces under Rommel's command attempted to capitalize on their success at Kasserine, aiming to exploit the perceived weaknesses of the American lines. Rommel, however, was not entirely aware of the rapid transformation occurring within the American forces. As the German panzers advanced towards the reformed American lines in late February 1943, they were met with a surprising level of resistance. No longer the inexperienced troops of Kasserine Pass, the American soldiers, under Patton's inspiring leadership, stood their ground. The American artillery units, with their M1017 mm pack howitzers, dug in and prepared to hold the line. Their gunners, young men who had tasted the bitter defeat at Kasserine, were now determined not to let their lines break again. And then the German assault came. Panzers rolled across the terrain, but instead of a swift breakthrough, they found their advance stalled by a stubborn and tenacious defense. The American artillery roared in response, sending showers of steel into the approaching German tanks. The defensive line held. The American soldiers, buoyed by their newfound discipline and resolve, repulsed the German assault. Patton, from his command post, could see the tide turning. The reborn American forces had weathered the storm. The German forces, realizing that they couldn't break through the American lines, began to retreat. Rommel, despite his strategic brilliance, was forced to accept that the American forces had become a formidable enemy. The battle for North Africa would no longer be an easy win for the Axis powers and marked a turning point for the American forces in North Africa. The soldiers who had held their ground that day were no longer the inexperienced troops who had suffered at Kasserine Pass. They had transformed into a disciplined, tenacious fighting force, one that would soon help turn the tide of the entire war. Chapter 4 The Final Offensive The dust and echoes of the conflict at Kasserine Pass had barely settled when the stage was set for the next encounter in the rugged, sun-bleached terrain of Tunisia. The Battle of El Geder, unfolding in March 1943, was another pivotal confrontation, marking a bold assertion of the newly reformed American military might under General George Patton. Opposing Patton was General Jürgen von Arnim, taking over from Rommel who had been called back to Europe. Von Arnim, a seasoned German commander, intended to continue where Rommel left off, underestimating the changes that had swept through the American forces. As Patton surveyed the field at El Geder, he recognized a unique opportunity. The terrain was ideal for defensive warfare, 
providing the perfect backdrop for his plan to lure the German Panzer divisions into a well-prepared trap. The German forces initiated the attack, their tanks advancing under the scorching sun, their dust trails billowing behind them like menacing storm clouds. They moved with confidence, expecting another easy victory over the American forces. What they met, however, was a wall of fire and steel. Patton's plan unfolded perfectly. The German tanks advanced into a carefully laid trap, becoming the targets of concentrated artillery fire from the American guns that were hidden behind the ridges and hills. Despite von Arnhem's tactical expertise, the German forces could not break through the withering fire, their tanks becoming burning wrecks in the rocky terrain. The American forces, drawing upon their newfound resolve and discipline, held their ground. The Battle of El Geder was becoming a symbol of their redemption. The fighting was intense and lasted for days, with both sides suffering losses. Yet the American forces, steeled by the leadership of Patton and their determination to avenge their previous defeats, held on. By the end of March, the Germans were forced to retreat, leaving behind a battlefield marked by the burnt-out remnants of their panzer divisions. The American flag flew high over El Geder, marking a significant victory that signaled a shift in the North African campaign. The Battle of El Geder was a turning point. It wasn't just an American victory, it was a testament to the resilience and spirit of the American forces. They had faced the specter of Kasserine, learned their lessons, and emerged stronger. El Geder was their answer to their doubters, a clear message that they were ready to take the fight to the heart of the Axis powers. In the weeks following the triumph at El Geder, the American forces, now confident and battle-hardened, faced their next challenge, the Battle of Hill 609. This was not just another confrontation, it was a symbol of their journey from raw recruits to formidable soldiers. The battle would test their mettle against the backdrop of a rocky outcrop ominously known as Hill 609. At the helm for the Americans was Major General Omar Bradley, a thoughtful and diligent commander known for his strategic acumen. Opposing him was Colonel General Hans-Jürgen von Arnhem, a persistent and experienced foe still reeling from the defeat at El Geder. Hill 609 loomed over the battlefield, a barren rocky expanse that seemed to brood under the Tunisian sun. The hill, occupied by German forces, served as a fortified stronghold, its steep slopes providing an excellent vantage point and a formidable defensive position. On the dawn of April 28, 1943, American forces advanced towards Hill 609 under a sky filled with the roar of artillery fire and the dust of battle. Bradley's plan was methodical, use artillery to weaken the German defenses and then send the infantry to seize the hill. The American soldiers, clad in their dusty uniforms and grim determination, ascended the rocky slopes under heavy German fire. They faced a well-entrenched enemy, but the lessons of Kasserine and El Geder had steeled them for such adversity. Over the following days, the hill became a scene of intense combat. Despite the strategic disadvantage, the American soldiers pushed on, displaying a tenacity that surprised the German defenders. The rocky terrain, crisscrossed with gun smoke and echoing with the roar of battle, became a testament to their resolve. 
Finally, on May 1, the stars and stripes were hoisted over the summit of Hill 609. Bradley, watching the flag flutter against the sky, couldn't help but marvel at the transformation of his soldiers. They had faced down a formidable enemy and emerged victorious. The Battle of Hill 609 served as a final affirmation of the American forces' medal in North Africa. The once green and inexperienced soldiers had become veterans of a harsh and unforgiving war. The lessons of the past, the spirit of their leaders, and their indomitable will to fight had transformed them into a force that would soon help liberate Europe from the clutches of the Axis powers. The shadow of Kasserine had been truly lifted, the soldiers of Operation Torch had come of age. In the wake of the Battle of Hill 609, a sense of optimism pervaded the American forces. Under the leadership of generals like Patton and Bradley, they had weathered the storm and were on the cusp of a significant victory. But their journey was not over yet. On the other side, the Axis powers, led by Colonel General von Arnhem, were battered but not beaten. They hunkered down in Tunis and Deserta, the last Axis strongholds in North Africa. However, the winds of war were shifting. The Allied forces, combining the might of the Americans, British, and Free French, initiated the final push in May 1943. Tunis and Bizerta, once symbols of the Axis strength, were now under siege. The once formidable Panzer divisions were reeling under constant Allied attacks. Among the American troops advancing towards Tunis was Sergeant John Bassalone, a Marine who had distinguished himself through his valor and leadership. Bassalone, like many of his comrades, had evolved from a raw recruit to a seasoned soldier, embodying the transformation of the American forces in North Africa. On May 7, 1943, Tunis fell. American and British troops, their faces covered in dust but spirits high, marched into the city, welcomed by the cheering Tunisian populace. The once distant dream of victory was becoming a reality. A day later, Bizerta also fell to the Allies. Sergeant Bassalone, among the first to enter the city, could hardly believe it. They had done it. They had won. North Africa, once a battleground of despair and defeat, was now a beacon of victory. The news of the victory in North Africa reverberated around the world. For the Allies, it was the first major victory against the Axis powers, a testament to their resolve and cooperation. For the American forces, it was a rite of passage, a transition from untested recruits to a formidable army. The victory in North Africa was not just a military achievement, it was a symbol of hope. It marked the beginning of the end for the Axis powers, setting the stage for the invasions of Italy and, eventually, Normandy. The tide of the war was turning, and the soldiers of Operation Torch, now victorious in North Africa, were ready to bring the fight to Europe. Chapter 5 Consequences and Impact The echoes of victory in North Africa were still resounding when Allied commanders began mapping out the next steps in their campaign against the Axis powers. The once distant dream of an end to the war was inching closer to reality, and the soldiers of Operation Torch had an integral role to play. Among the strategists was General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force. Eisenhower, 
whose calm demeanor belied a strategic genius, recognized the strategic advantage that North Africa, now under Allied control, offered. The lands these soldiers had fought so hard for were not just a series of victory points on a map, they had become springboards for the next phase of the war. From these strategic positions, the Allies could launch operations into southern Europe, targeting the soft underbelly of the Axis-held territories. One such operation was Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily. Eisenhower and his team meticulously planned the assault. The lessons learned from Operation Torch, particularly the importance of coordinated land and naval efforts, were applied to ensure a successful invasion. Among the soldiers gearing up for the assault on Sicily were the same men who had slogged through the sands of North Africa. Men like Sergeant Bassalone, now a symbol of the resilience and determination of the American soldier, were ready to bring the fight to the enemy's doorstep. As they embarked on their journey across the Mediterranean, the soldiers couldn't help but recall their first arrival in North Africa. Back then, they were raw, inexperienced, and full of apprehension. Now, they were battle-hardened and confident, ready to take on the Axis powers in their own territory. The invasion of Sicily, launched on July 9, 1943, was a significant success. The American and British forces, utilizing their experience from North Africa, swiftly captured the island, marking the first step in the liberation of Italy. The victory in Sicily, like the victory in North Africa, was a significant blow to the Axis powers. The once invincible facade of the Axis was crumbling, their grip on Europe weakening. The soldiers of Operation Torch, once underdogs in this global conflict, were now at the forefront of the march towards victory. North Africa had indeed become a springboard, launching them into the very heart of enemy territory. As the battle-hardened soldiers of Operation Torch pushed deeper into the Axis territories, Back home in the United States and across the Atlantic in Britain, military strategists and political leaders were taking stock of the lessons learned from the North African campaign. One of the most significant realizations was the importance of unified command. The success of Operation Torch, despite its initial challenges, was largely due to the coordinated efforts of the American, British, and Free French forces. Figures such as Eisenhower, Patton, and Bradley had effectively managed a diverse coalition of forces, leading them to victory. Another lesson learned was the importance of adaptability. In North Africa, the Allies had faced diverse challenges, ranging from harsh desert conditions to well-entrenched enemy positions. Their ability to adapt, to evolve tactics on the fly, had been a crucial factor in their victory. This adaptability was epitomized by figures such as Sergeant Bassalone, whose leadership and resilience in the face of changing battlefield conditions had become a symbol of the American fighting spirit. It was clear that adaptability, combined with unwavering determination, could overcome even the most formidable of challenges. Perhaps the most poignant lesson was the transformation of the American military. The campaign in North Africa had been the United States' first major engagement in the Second World War. The raw recruits who had landed on the beaches of Casablanca had, through the crucible of battle, become a capable, battle-hardened force. The American military had matured on the battlefields of North Africa.
These lessons weren't just academic notes, they were hard-earned wisdom that would shape the course of the war. They informed the planning and execution of subsequent operations, including the invasions of Sicily and Italy, and the Normandy landings. The experiences in North Africa had fundamentally shaped the Allies' approach to warfare, setting the stage for their eventual victory. Thus, Operation Torch was not just a military operation, it was a crucible, a learning experience that shaped the Allied strategy and forged a path towards victory. The lessons learned from its successes, and its failures, would echo through the remainder of the war, guiding the Allies as they pushed towards the heart of the Axis territories. In the grand narrative of the Second World War, Operation Torch holds a significant place. It was more than just a military campaign, it was a pivotal event that significantly influenced the course of the war and ultimately led to the defeat of the Axis powers. One of the most immediate impacts of Operation Torch was the opening up of a second front against the Axis powers. With the American and British forces holding North Africa, the pressure was divided between the Eastern Front, where the Soviets were engaged in a brutal struggle, and the newly opened Southern Front. The impact on the Axis powers was immediate and profound. The once united Axis front was now stretched thin, forced to fight on multiple fronts, weakening their defenses and dampening their momentum. A key figure who saw the strategic importance of this development was General Dwight D. Eisenhower. His vision and leadership in utilizing the North African springboard to initiate invasions into Italy and eventually southern France divided the focus of the Axis powers and hastened their downfall. At the same time, the victory in North Africa bolstered the morale of the Allied forces. Soldiers like Sergeant Bassalone, who fought bravely through the North African campaign, became symbols of hope and resilience for both the military and the home front. Their stories of courage under fire, perseverance against all odds, and unity amidst diversity inspired millions and reinforced the belief in eventual victory. Another significant impact was the strengthening of the Allied alliance. The joint British-American operation, which included Free French and other forces, solidified the ties between these nations. The camaraderie forged in the deserts of North Africa, the shared sacrifices, and the taste of victory together deepened their commitment to the common cause. Ultimately, Operation Torch was a turning point. It marked the beginning of a series of offensives that would drive the Axis powers back, leading to their eventual surrender. It was here, on the sands of North Africa, that the tide of the war began to turn in favor of the Allies. As such, Operation Torch didn't just shape the course of the war, it changed the course of history itself. Chapter 6, The Legacy of Operation Torch When the dust of the Second World War settled and the world moved towards healing and rebuilding, the memories of Operation Torch remained etched in the minds of those who participated, and those who observed from afar. The stories of courage, camaraderie, and strategic brilliance were passed down generations, turning into a rich tapestry of history and a testament to human resilience in the face of extraordinary challenges. The men and women who took part in the operation became heroes, their stories part of the narrative of the war. Figures like General Eisenhower, General Patton, General Bradley, and the indomitable Sergeant Bassalone entered the annals of military history. 
They were remembered not just for their victories, but for the leadership, courage, and resilience they displayed in the face of adversity. Monuments and memorials were erected in honor of the fallen and the victors of Operation Torch. In cities across the United States, Britain, and France, these monuments stood as reminders of the sacrifices made and the victories won. They served as spaces of collective memory, where people gathered to remember, honor, and learn from the past. The battlefields of North Africa, too, became sites of memory. Each year, veterans and their families, history enthusiasts, and curious travelers journeyed to these sites. They walked on the sands where once tanks had rumbled and bullets had flown, and they remembered the men and women who had fought there. Books, films, and documentaries were created, telling the stories of Operation Torch in vivid detail. They introduced new generations to the heroics and hardships of those times, ensuring that the memories of the operation lived on. Yet, remembering Torch wasn't just about commemorating past victories. It was also about learning from the experiences, understanding the complexities of war, and acknowledging the human cost of such endeavors. It served as a reminder of the cost of freedom and the collective strength of united forces. Through these various forms of remembering, Operation Torch continued to live on, shaping not only historical understanding but also influencing the collective consciousness. It stood as a testament to the resilience of humanity, a chapter of history that held valuable lessons for the present and the future. Beyond the scope of World War II, Operation Torch left an indelible mark on the evolution of modern warfare, impacting military strategy, tactics, and international collaborations for decades to come. In the classrooms of military academies around the world, Operation Torch became a case study in strategic planning and coalition warfare. It showcased how diverse forces could come together, overcoming logistical, cultural, and strategic differences to execute a complex and successful operation. Future military leaders, studying the likes of Eisenhower and Patton, learned the importance of flexibility in command, the need for comprehensive intelligence, and the power of combined arms tactics. But it was not just in the theoretical realms that Operation Torch made an impact. Its influence could be seen on the battlegrounds too. The campaign in North Africa demonstrated the decisive role that armored warfare and air superiority could play in modern conflicts. It highlighted the importance of logistics, intelligence, and effective supply chains. These lessons influenced the development and implementation of tactics and strategies in conflicts to follow. Moreover, the lessons learned from Operation Torch had a significant influence on the evolution of the American military. The experience in North Africa led to the refinement of the U.S. Army's organizational structure and the development of new training methodologies. The soldier who had stumbled in Kasserine Pass was not the same as the one who triumphed in Hill 609. The lessons of Torch had been taken to heart. In the realm of international relations and coalition building too, Operation Torch had a lasting influence. The operation, conducted by the Allies in concert, set a precedent for international military cooperation. It showed how countries with different interests could work together to confront a common threat. This concept of coalition warfare would be replicated in numerous conflicts in the decades that followed, 
shaping the dynamics of international military cooperation. Thus, even as the echoes of gunfire faded, the impact of Operation Torch continued to reverberate through the halls of military academies, the planning rooms of the Pentagon, the vast expanses of battlefields, and the diplomatic corridors of power. It left a lasting legacy on the canvas of modern warfare, shaping strategies, tactics, and alliances for generations to come. Operation Torch, with its dramatic battles, captivating personalities, and far-reaching consequences, caught the imagination of artists, filmmakers, and writers, thus finding a place in the landscape of popular culture. Cinema, with its ability to portray the scale and drama of war, embraced the tales of Operation Torch. Classic films such as Casablanca, although not directly about the operation, was set against the backdrop of the events leading up to Torch. In more recent times, Patton, an iconic biographical war film, brought the fiery persona of General George S. Patton Jr. to the silver screen, including his role in the North African campaign. In the realm of literature, Operation Torch and its key figures found their way into several popular novels and historical accounts. Authors such as Rick Atkinson in his book An Army at Dawn, The War in North Africa, 1942-1943 narrated the story of Operation Torch with a captivating blend of military strategy, human drama, and historical context. Video games, an increasingly popular form of entertainment, also incorporated Operation Torch. Titles like Call of Duty 2, Big Red One, and Medal of Honor, Allied Assault included missions inspired by Operation Torch, allowing players to virtually participate in key battles. Documentaries and miniseries brought the operation into the living rooms of the masses. The World at War, a renowned television documentary series, featured an episode on the North African campaign, blending archival footage, interviews, and expert analysis to bring the story of Operation Torch to life. Moreover, Operation Torch inspired numerous songs, paintings, and even comic books, each adding a unique perspective to the narrative of the operation. The courage of the soldiers, the brilliance of the commanders, and the scale of the operation were captured in various forms, each resonating with different audiences. Operation Torch, therefore, transcended the pages of history books and military archives. It became part of popular culture, its story told and retold in multiple forms and formats. Through these various expressions, the memory of Operation Torch was kept alive, its lessons taught anew, and its heroes honored by each successive generation.